Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. And they also had to deal with smallpox. It was definitely a scourge, not only on land, where it was a a real threat to the Continental Army, uh, but also at sea. This week, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Christian McBurney, and he's discussing the role of smallpox on the high seas. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Christian McBurney, and he'll tell us about the effect on really the rage of smallpox on the high seas as it applies to privateers during the American Revolution. Christian McBurney has provided us with some really insightful articles over the years and some wonderful books. I'd encourage you to check them out. But this article is one that particularly hits home for us. We know the effect of disease, and we know how it can really upend uh, any superpower in a a military sense, in a cultural sense, and in a social sense. Um, This article, in my opinion, is very important. Uh, So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Christian McBurney. Christian McBurney, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tell us about your background. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, an attorney by... uh by day, but of course my uh, real passion is uh, writing history, in particular American Revolutionary War history, and uh, I've written uh, 10 books and six on the American Revolution, several dealing with Rhode Island, which is where I'm from originally, uh, but some uh, on a national scale as well. What drew your interest into this topic? Well, I just uh, think it's interesting to write about privateers and to write about smallpox. Um, and also they do have to do with my most recent book in the American Revolution, which is uh, Dark Voyage, an American Privateer's War against the Britain's uh, African slave trade. So um, I got to know both uh, topics quite well, privateers and smallpox. Christian, tell us about privateers. Who were they? Sure. Um, and privateers were throughout the 18th century and the 17th century and, and even into the 19th century, eventually uh, the professional navy said uh, look these guys have to go away we just you know we're the real navy here let's get rid of the privateers but privateers uh, were not pirates they were sanctioned by governments so the continental congress finally in march of uh, 1776 said uh, we will commission privateers after several states had already done so uh, and basically they authorized privateers to attack enemy shipping. So uh, the privateers couldn't just attack anyone. They had to attack uh, private uh, enemy shipping and capture enemy shipping. 
And it was kind of amusing, uh, you know, with the Marlboro, which we'll talk about, the, the subject of the Dark Voyage book. Uh, they would be on the lookout to, uh, you know, sailing to Africa and back from Africa to uh, come across uh, enemy shipping. And they'd see a sail in the distance, and they'd be chasing it and chasing it, and finally come up to it. And then they'd say, oh, that's a, that's a, a flag of uh, Spain, or that's a flag of Portugal. You know, Spain, they're trying to be an ally of, so they couldn't attack that ship. And Denmark, uh, the same. They were, I think they were trying to get some uh, loans from Denmark. So, um, you know, they would they'd all be depressed. But when they saw a British flag, they'd be totally elated. So they could, they could, they could capture that ship. And the thing with private, why would they be elated was because uh, privateers could capture uh, the enemy uh, vessel and share in the proceeds. So um, it was required uh, part of the commission that when an uh, enemy ship was captured, it would be brought into port, be brought in, in this case, to Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, there'd be an admiralty court and actually, a, you know, a trial by uh, by individual, uh, you know, the jury would be uh, individual citizens. And, just uh, you know, men of property, not, not necessarily rich or anything. Uh, they would judge, and the key judgment was: was this an enemy vessel? And if it was an enemy vessel, then it was generally a, a valid capture. Babcock actually got in trouble once because he, one of the ships he captured on, uh, after this voyage, um, was a, um, uh, I believe it was a, a Dutch ship, but it was going to Ireland. And the um, jury decided, uh, and it was upheld on appeal, that uh, the ship itself was not enemy shipping, so it couldn't, you couldn't sell it, and you had to pay back the owners, which he hated. Uh, but the cargo, which usually was more valuable than the ship itself, um, was headed for Britain, uh, Ireland, British colony, so that was a valid capture. So, uh, you know, they did care about these things. And if it was a valid capture, there would the uh, ship and the cargo would be put on uh, auction and uh, sold to the highest bidder. And then the owners of the privateer, like John Brown, who's of <clears throat> Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, a wealthy merchant, well-known merchant, uh, and then other investors would share 50% of the proceeds <clears throat> and the officers and crew would share in the other 50% of the proceeds. And uh, in early 1776, the uh, uh, privateers did very well. The British Navy, Royal Navy, did not do a good job of protecting merchant ships. And uh, American privateers easily captured uh, many uh, British ships, uh, particularly in the Caribbean. That's where Britain had its uh, sugar colonies, which were creating fabulous wealth uh, for Britain. Uh, they would bring back sugar to the uh, Britain, and but if they were captured, then the Americans would take that cargo and other cargo, like uh, related products like car, uh, molasses and, and rum. Uh, and also, uh, Americans privateers, and particularly New England, were capturing uh, British ships on the Canadian coast. They were trying to supply uh, the British Army and Navy in uh, in Canada. So they had a spectacular success uh, in Providence, uh, where John Brown was. He had definitely spectacular success. Uh, he had a very small uh, privateer called the Diamond. It was only eight guns and only had a crew of 40. But it was able to capture three 
vessels of um, large merchant ships. And the reason was these merchant ships typically only had a crew of sometimes 12, sometimes 18 men, uh, whereas the privateers had many more, uh, this small sloop had a crew of 40. If you had a larger ship, you might have a crew of 90 or 120. And the reason was they could man the cannon and they could have extra men to board ships. So they were much more experienced in attacking than these uh, merchantmen were in defending. So that's why the merchantmen often just uh, surrendered to small uh, privateers. And um, I'd say, uh, kind of rambling here, but I'd say um, the most important contribution of my article uh, on the privateers <clears throat> is the um, relationship to the cost, to the value of the uh, uh, captured goods. The cost is where, you know, you can read a lot of books on privateers, but they never say, well, how much does the privateer cost? What does it cost to outfit a privateer and buy a privateer? And I came across a document that John Brown has. It was actually a tax document. He's, Providence uh, had a tax on tangible property. So he's trying to um, uh, you know, set forth all of his tangible property. Uh, he's also saying, look, I suffered some losses because uh, you know, Britain, uh, British ships captured some of my privateers. So he goes into some detail. And the diamond... Uh, it cost him to buy the ship and outfit it, rig it, put the sails on, hire the crew, buy gunpowder, buy cannon, 3,300 pounds. But that ship captured three large merchant ships that had a value of 9,000 pounds to 10,000 pounds. So you could see what an excellent uh, return on profit, uh, on investment that was. Uh, now, uh, there were other privateers who invested. Once he got more money, he invested in larger privateers that tended to cost uh, 10,000 pounds, 11,000, 12,000 pounds, but he would only buy a share. So it was uh, common for uh, investors and privateers to share, uh, you know, take a share in a privateer, you know, three sixteenths, uh, 50%, you know, that kind of thing. So as not to expose yourself all to one voyage, because if you you put a lot of money in a privateer and then it was captured immediately, that would be a big loss. Uh, eventually, the Royal Navy did start to do a better job with privateers. They would um, start to convoy private merchant ships. Uh, they were actually targeting privateers to capture them. And if they were captured, the crew was sent to dreadful prison ships in New York Harbor, uh, some to Newport, Rhode Island or Halifax. So that was pretty miserable, uh, and, and things started to turn a little bit, but privateers really continued throughout the war. Uh, but one of my favorite quotes was from a guy named John Howland, who ended up uh, founding the Rhode Island Circle Society and doing many other good deeds. But when he was a young man, he uh, enlisted in a Rhode Island regiment that became part of the Continental Army, so he was with Washington and uh, you know, 1776, 1777, just particularly 1776, you know, it was a very harsh uh, time for the Continental Army. So when he got back to the Providence at the end of the year, he said, well, all my friends have been engaged in privateering and they've all become rich. And uh, he, uh, unfortunately, was, you know, suffered very much as a, as a soldier. But, uh, of course, that was important to be, a, it was more important to be a soldier than to be a privateer for the good of the Continental cause. 
And in fact, uh, some generals complained that uh, too many uh, young men were going out on privateers trying to get wealthy, and uh, not enough were enlisting in the Continental Army. So that was a, a problem throughout the, the, the war. Christian, could you talk about the Marlboro? Sure. Uh, that's the uh, main uh, ship in my recent book, The Dark Voyage, an American Privateer's War Against Af- uh, Britain's African Slave Trade. Uh, the American Privateer was called the Marlboro. <clears throat> it was uh, fitted out by John Brown, the Newport merchant. He was best known prior to the American Revolution for uh, being the leader of the uh, attack on the British revenue cutter Gatsby in Rhode Island. In 1772, which was one of the first uh, acts of violent resistance against British rule. Uh, And he, uh, as I said, was a a big investor in privateers. He got some money. Then he got concerned. Uh, You know, uh, yeah, I was making a lot of money in 1776. Now it's 1777, and I see that uh, the Royal Navy's making some headway attacking privateers. You know, if you build a 20-gun privateer, and then suddenly it's captured by a larger 32-gun frigate, which were very fast, faster than 20-gun ships, actually, uh, then that was a bad investment. So what to do? Well, he came up with the brilliant plan of sending, uh, creating, a, 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 building a new privateer called the Marlboro, built it in Providence, 20 guns, uh, a brig, three-masted, a uh, crew of about 100, and he had the idea, I'm going to send it to Africa <clears throat> and attack British slave ships and slave trading forts. He knew that uh, <clears throat> the British slave trade was one of Britain's major industry. It was not its major industry, but it was an important one. And uh, Britain at the time was the leading slave trading country in the world, by far, much more so than America, for example. Excuse me. <coughs> And uh, the reason he thought of it was that John Brown himself had invested in two slave trading voyages prior to the Revolutionary War, one of which was uh, one of the most disastrous of uh, colonial times. 109 out of 136 uh, African captives ended up dying um, because of the bad conditions on the ship, and there was also a uh, rebellion among the captains that was put down harshly. Uh, but he did have knowledge of Africa, so that made him comfortable where others would not have uh, you know, been that uh, bold. And uh, so he figured that uh, the Royal Navy was stretched, which it was. It was uh, you know, sailing the British Army around. It was blockading ports. It was going after privateers. It was saving a lot of ships in the English Channel to make sure the French didn't, didn't invade didn't have any ships to spare to help protect uh, the British slave trade on the African coast. So uh, uh, he did, uh, Brown sent uh, uh, the Marlboro out, crew about 96, and uh, it turned out to be a, a successful voyage, a fascinating voyage, of course. Anything to do with the slave trade is, uh, you know, inherently interesting, even if awful. And uh, the Marlboro did wind up uh, sacking a uh, British slave fort, a major slave fort where the Britain, uh, the British slave uh, ships would stop by and there'd be a bunch of uh, captives already in uh, cages and they could easily buy them. Uh, but 
uh, that uh, fort was sacked and all the uh, cargo was stolen or taken, <laughs> seized, and uh, put out of uh, uh, operation for about uh, 10 years. And uh, the Marlboro also captured about four British slave ships with uh, enslaved people on board, uh, including one that had 310 on board, uh, you know, massive number. But, uh, you know, the privateers were not just altruistic trying to uh, help out the uh, captives. Uh, they were trying to make money. Uh, so uh, they knew that if they could uh, get this these ships to uh, a safe port, and a French colonial port, for example, they could sell the ship and the cargo, the human cargo, and share in 50% of the proceeds. So it's uh, you know, a story never foretold, certainly an unusual one for the American Revolution. What kind of threat did smallpox pose during the 18th century? Sure, and that's the, the main subject of the article on, on the JR. Um, and uh, smallpox was uh, a scourge. It was uh, the most deadly disease of the times. There are two recent books that have uh, investigated smallpox, and both have claimed that you know, ten, about 10,000 uh, deaths occurred from smallpox. Now, about 25,000 died in the war. So um, they're saying 10,000 out of 25,000 was responsible uh, uh, because of uh, smallpox. I, I kind of think that's an exaggeration. But, uh, you know, how it is when <clears throat> anyone spends a lot of time focusing on one topic, they think that's the main cause or something like that. But there's no question that uh, smallpox was a deadly scourge. And uh, it could decimate an army. It really decimated uh, Benedict Arnold's army outside of uh, Quebec after the failed invasion. Uh, and uh, uh, Washington, fortunately, uh, recognized that smallpox was a problem. Of course, he suffered it uh, on a trip to the Caribbean, and he had a pockmarked face from smallpox. He survived. Uh, and he, uh, at, in 1776, decided that uh, the Continental Army should be inoculated. Uh, inoculation uh, was a controversy. It was very controversial. Uh, I mean, Boston in 1730, 1740, underwent a smallpox uh, epidemic, which was kind of happened in cities uh, every 10 or 20 years or so. And uh, some of the leaders said, we need to do inoculation. Others says, no, that's too dangerous. Uh, inoculation was basically, you take uh, someone's blood from someone who has smallpox, and then you make an incision and intentionally infect someone else. That actually uh, is a much milder form of smallpox when you do that. And uh, as opposed to, if you catch it, quote, the natural way, it's very dangerous, much more dangerous. So that's why inoculation was thought to be uh, helpful. And, and uh, it, it was. I mean, Washington was right. It was the best course. But it wasn't perfect. Uh, there was a, a danger that uh, some of the people who were inoculated could spread the disease to others who were not inoculated. And so uh, they could... Uh, suffer death or and, and spread it around as well. So it wasn't a perfect solution, but it was a good one. Christian, how did this illness first appear on board, on board the Marlboro? Yeah, and uh, most of the uh, what we know about the Marlboro is from a ship's log written by the captain's clerk, uh, John uh, Boss of um, 
of Newport. <clears throat> and uh, he uh, says that uh, on about the sixth or seventh day of the voyage, someone comes down with smallpox. And uh, it wasn't just anybody. It was the captain's younger brother. So the captain was George Babcock. Uh, this was his first major command. Uh, he had been a lieutenant on one on, on one of uh, on the Diamond, uh, John Brown's small privateer that was so successful. But this was, was his first command, so he was uh, kind of um, you know this was his first challenge of, of leadership. And here it is, his own brother that he brought on this voyage came down with smallpox, and he made a remarkable decision. He didn't want his brother infecting anyone else. You know, it's possible that the brother got it from someone on land and no one else was infected yet. So he ordered his brother to be put on the foremast. So up the main mast, about halfway up, and just lying there. And the first day, he had two or three men looking after him, going up and down. Uh, now, they presumably had already been inoculated, so they weren't going to catch it again. But... Um, uh, it uh, it was uh, very painful to see his brother up there suffering, um, and but he uh, kept him up there. Uh, believe it or not, uh, the first night actually he didn't have anyone helping him out. Eventually, he did have these three fellows helping him out. But uh, Samuel, uh, the brother, lasted for twelve days and eventually died. Uh, and it didn't help that he put Samuel up there because others started getting um, smallpox uh, regardless. And uh, uh, two of them died, and George had to make a decision, Captain Babcock. Uh, he decided that everyone who had, did not have smallpox before would be inoculated. So that was risky, again, because if you uh, some of the people you intentionally give people smallpox, they can spread it around. So uh, he, uh, uh, the, all, all the people, all the crew members, about half of them out of 96, were inoculated. And um, some of the ones who were not inoculated kind of got dizzy, but they turned out to be okay. But uh, two of the people who got inoculated died. So again, inoculation was not perfect. But the threat was that everyone in the all the uh, the 50 percent had never had smallpox would catch it, and then the crew would be decimated from 96 down to 48, and Babcock at that point probably would have to return to port and mission not fulfilled. Uh, as it turned out, uh, a total of five died, uh, two, I, I believe three, uh, Samuel Babcock and two others who caught it. And then after inoculation, two others died from it. But the inoculation did work eventually and stopped the um, spread of the disease and it disappeared and it was not a problem uh, anymore on the uh, voyage. So the Marlboro was able to uh, proceed to Africa. Christian, how do you think this article helps us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, uh, you know, leaders had to make uh, tough decisions. Uh, you you can see that George Babcock made a tough decision about his own brother who he loved very much uh, and he had him put up in a foremast and, and exposed to the elements uh, and that's you know that's that's leadership he also made a tough decision to inoculate 
the crew members who uh, were not were not inoculated. Uh, and actually, I forgot to mention that one one boy died, and uh, he said he had been gotten smallpox before, but probably the case that he never did. It was something else, and he died unfortunately. But uh, you know, he made a tough decision, and it was the right. He made you know two good decisions, and so he, he showed good leadership as he did throughout the voyage and on other private gene voyages. So, uh, and they also had to deal with smallpox. It was definitely a scourge, not only on land, where it was uh, a real threat to the Continental Army, uh, but also at sea, where in a small space, you know, the Marlboro was only about 100, 110 feet long, uh, 18 feet wide, very small, uh, cramped quarters, so smallpox could really uh, decimate a crew, so you really had to be careful. And uh, so both the, the importance, I think, is both um, – uh, showing uh, Babcock showing leadership and and dealing with uh, a scourge of the American Revolution, smallpox. Christian McBurney, thanks again. Thank you. Glad to be here. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches. I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.